I told everyone that I was going to be gone for about a year. In the back of my mind, I really thought I'd be gone for two years. I ended up being gone for about 10 years. I just kept going. Welcome to the new Nomad Podcast, hosted by Alan and Andrew of Insured Nomads. Join us as Alan and Andrew interview and explore the community of people and ideas that embody the nomadic spirit. Tune in to incredible discussions with thought leaders each week that will help you take full advantage of the cross-border remote work lifestyle. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to The New Nomad. We have a great guest today. Gary Arndt will join us, a gentleman who literally has had most some of the most amazing experiences, traveled to some of the most amazing places, taken some wonderful, incredible photography. Somebody who does something that I think all of us would like to do. Just decide at one time that you're going to go see the world He'll uh, explain that and, and also have a, a quick conversation on perhaps tips that if you were going to do that and maybe some cautionary tales to, you know, things that you might want to avoid. But before then, I'd like to introduce my co-host, Andrew Jernigan. Andrew himself has made some very adventurous decisions. The word of the day is adventure and exploration and uh, some of your exploration and adventure ideas. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hi, everyone. Andrew here. And that question just took me back to the plaza in Kansas City. I remember one day we're sitting at one of those beautiful fountains. My brother asked me what I was going to do, what I wanted to do. He's 10 years older than I am. And this was 30 years ago. And that spurred an adventure streak in me that has lasted for many years now. And I married a non-American. I'm from the U.S. I've lived around the world now and raised my kids across many continents. So adventure for me did take place when I made my first trip to Europe and decided this is it. Alan, you're quite an an adventurous guy that, you know, you've got some practices when you go to another country, you you make sure and do some specific things that take you deep into the culture. So it's going to be fun to see what Gary does when he goes into a new culture as well. Yeah, you know, just to tie into that, like when I travel overseas, I try to get a haircut at whatever country I'm in and that haircuts between uh, Jordan and Ukraine and other places. And as we talked to Gary, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You know, you look at the list of things like the Dead Sea. Then I've also learned a few lessons like don't shave before you go into the Dead Sea. It's very painful as the salt gets in, even if you didn't feel you cut yourself. So with that, I think let's bring Gary into the conversation and and, and Gary, welcome aboard and tell us a little bit about when you decided to make a decision, and I think it was 2007, that, you know what, I'm going to pack up, I'm going to sell my, my house, and I'm going to go travel, see the world, and, and how do you even build a list? Because it's a really unique thing. I made the decision actually in 2005, uh, and it took me about 18 months to tie up all the loose ends. I had gone back to school. I was at the University of Minnesota. I went back to study uh, geology and geophysics. Uh, I had to sell my house. The housing market was kind of soft at the time. So 2007, turned over the keys to my house and I set off. And I didn't really have a, any sort of bucket list. I had a general direction and the direction was west. If you ever want to travel around the world, my advice is always go to the west, regardless of where you want to go, simply because it's easier on jet lag than it is to go east because you just stay up a few hours longer and you're fine. So when I started, I basically kind of went by land to Los Angeles, uh, flew to Hawaii, learned how to scuba dive in Maui, and then spent the next half of a year uh, island hopping across the Pacific, uh, visiting most of the the island countries that were there, Fiji, Samoa, Tonga, Vanuatu, New Caledonia, Micronesia, the Marshall Islands, Palau, uh, all those places. Oh, wow. 
And I told everyone that I was going to be gone for about a year. In the back of my mind, I really thought I'd be gone for two years. I ended up being gone for about 10 years. I just kept going. That's amazing. And you know, you comment about going west. I, I did buy actually the 2008 around the world ticket and just continue to go west because you could fly the red eye and land somewhere else and then and then try to head about. I mean, how did you methodically move like that? Or was it like, I'm going to stay at a location until it's just time to go? I mean, what, what prompted you to keep moving on? Was it the experiences or the timing or what? Uh, yeah, there were, there were places where I would stay an extended period of time. Uh, so, for example, when I arrived in Saigon in Vietnam, I just stayed there for like a month. I got off the bus. I came in from Phnom Penh. And there's a woman there. I had no place to stay. She had a book. And she said, sir, do you need a place to stay? I said, yes, I do. And she had a book with pictures of her guest house. And I said, how much is it? She goes, $15 a night. I said, do you have Wi-Fi? She goes, yes, I do. And I stayed there a month. <laughs> that's, that's, <laughs> that's how great. the deal got closed. And there's been times like that where I've stayed for an extended period, mostly to rest. But, you know, I love traveling and I love exploring and learning. And so it was always just kind of going to see the next thing. And one of the things that I started doing on my, my travels was visiting UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And that became one of the big things for me. And so that often involved going to more obscure, out-of-the-way places that a lot of people don't visit. There's a lot of World Heritage Sites that are, you know, in big cities and they're pretty popular, but the vast majority of them are really kind of out of the way. And you have to you know, figure out ways to get to places that, that mostly don't get tourists. When you were traveling about the World Heritage Site list, was there a particular place that you would say, like you mentioned Cambodia. I loved Cambodia. And of course, people go to the killing fields, but it was when you actually got into the communities and you stayed there for a couple of weeks and you saw the people in their day to day. What, what was that as fulfilling as actually seeing those amazing sites? Well, in the case of Cambodia, uh, one of the things that you realize right away is that this is a country that had been really traumatized and still hadn't gotten over it. What happened in the 1970s there, a huge part of their population was killed uh, by the Khmer Rouge. And you could see it everywhere. People were you know, missing limbs. It was a very young population. You saw very few old people. That was something you don't get by just looking at pictures of you know, Angkor Wat in a guidebook is, is really what that happened. And uh, there was, of course, places like the Killing Fields and the Tulsang Prison uh, that are kind of, you know, mementos to that period of time. But it, it's very hard to, to understand it unless you go and you see it yourself. Weston, Gary, you've seen so many unique things over that 10-year period. I was looking at your site, and you've got a map that shows the countries where you've been, things like that. If you were to pick the next three countries that you've never visited, what are those three, you think? If you if you had to pick three, Greenland, Mongolia, and probably Peru. Nice. You know, Peru's actually a pretty popular country, and I just I just haven't gotten to Peru. Yeah, and the and the most obvious place I have not been to is Jamaica. It's super easy to go there. You know, I have a cousin who's only been to one country outside of the United States, and the one country she went to was Jamaica. Uh, uh, so she has that up on me. Review on that one. Yeah, yeah. She's, um, she's but I've been to you know pretty much every other tiny little place in the Caribbean. And it, it's one of those things that because it's so easy to get to, I just haven't done it. With all your travels, are you also in the 50 state club? I mean, have you been to each one of the states also? I have been to each state twice. Oh, that's fantastic. And I'm very close to visiting every national park. Would have done that last year if it wasn't for the pandemic. And they've added a new park since then. So I now have six parks I have to visit. Uh, but they're all pretty easy. I've been to the hard parks. I've been to all the Alaska parks and American Samoa. So... Uh, I just have to, and I've been to every Canadian province three times. I've been to every Australian state. I've been to 
every state in South Africa, Germany, a lot of places like that. So when I travel, and I've been to 70 countries, not quite as extensive or exotic as you, you know, I have my like little checklist of things to make sure I stay healthy, out of trouble. I try not to wear the blue jeans, the sneakers, you know, I try to not, you know, there's a kind of a little travel checklist. What do you do to kind of prepare and to protect yourself that you could share with others that that might help keep them out of harm's way? And one of the things I'll mention that made me really smile is I too was in Thailand once in the middle of a protest. And it's kind of nice to be uh, not sticking out like a sore thumb. Uh, so I love your experiences on protecting yourself and staying safe. Well, in Thailand, if you're a white guy, you're you're sticking out, right? You're obviously not Thai. And when I was there during in 2010, during the red shirt protests, people were actively, they wanted me to hear their message, regardless what side they were on. So I, I didn't really fear anything when I was there. The dumbest little thing that I do for safety, and I've done this since day one of my travels, and I now even do it when I'm not traveling, is I put my wallet in my front pocket. I have never been pickpocketed. I have never, to the best of my knowledge, been robbed while traveling. I don't stay in dorm rooms and hostels. I get a single room just because I'd be the creepy old guy at this point. I So I'm not going to stay in a dorm room. Uh, and I always put the do not disturb sign on a door if I'm not staying for an extended period of time. But even if I am, I'll do that. And maybe like on the fifth day, I'll let someone clean the room or something. But if no one's in your room, that will ensure that all your stuff is safe. And I usually have a lot of electronics. But the biggest thing is, you know, put your just putting your wallet in your front pocket makes it harder to pickpocket and a pickpocket is going to go to someone else. Probably they'll just, you know, they're going to, they're looking for the lowest hanging fruit and that is the lowest hanging fruit. And also if you have a backpack, which I often have, cause I have a camera, the zipper on the back, put the zipper all the way down on the side. Don't have the zipper at the top. Because if it's at the top, it only needs to be open a little bit and you can get your hand in there. If you zip it all, so the zipper is as far down as it goes, you have to zip it like halfway. So tiny little things like that can make a huge difference. Interesting. In this world where we've all got technology, we've got our phones and which are mini computers. Have you encountered much cyber crime in your travels prior to the pandemic and all, because, you know, many people don't use a VPN on their phones. That's a place where we check our bank accounts. We have all this data. Is that something you've encountered or is, have you been lucky to avoid that? Not with cybercrime. Most cybercrime involves the first thing there's, they're going to target large companies because that's where they can have, they can find, you know, 20 million credit cards rather than trying to get one. Uh, when I've used a VPN, it's always been to stream something that I can't stream in that country or, or something else like that. So I don't think that, you know, those sort of man in the middle cyber attacks or something. And also when I first started, cyber cafes were a big thing and you'd be more at risk at a place where it's not your computer. Someone may have installed a key logger or something like that. You don't see cyber cafes that much anymore because everybody has a, a phone now or, or a laptop. Uh, and even when I was at a cyber cafe, one of the things you can do if you have a keystroke logger, let's say you're typing in a password, is it can only detect the keystrokes. So let's say you open up a notepad and you type in the first letter of your password, then you type in five random letters on a different app, go back to it, type in two letters of your password, and they're not going to be able to figure out your password if you do it like that. And you can screw up keystroke loggers. So if you're on a computer that's not yours, that you don't have any control over, 
that's a very easy way to just sort of ensure that you're making life difficult if someone would be tracking you. That's really interesting. You know, the other thing about safety, and I love the fact that you, you do the same thing, which is make sure that there aren't a lot of people accessing your room. Even people who trust like the, uh, the hotel safe, right? Because if you forget the combination, there's always somebody who can run upstairs and unlock it. So uh, I almost never use a hotel yeah, safe. I never use it either. And you say to yourself, well, if somebody can lock it, unlock it that quickly. And then of course, things like, you know, in certain countries, you don't want to stay higher than six floors because that's as high as the fire engines could get the ladders or you don't want to be near the front entrance in case cars. You know, my, number, my number one safety tip I always tell people, and this is something that you don't usually hear people, never ever go to a nightclub. Nothing good happens in a nightclub. I remember I was in Thailand one night and it was New Year's Eve and I heard all these sirens going off. Oh, I figure it's New Year's Eve. Next morning I wake up, 20 people got killed in a nightclub fire. People getting yep. uh, date rape drugs put in their drinks, people getting pickpocketed, extortion scams. Nothing good happens in a nightclub. And if none of those bad things happen, you're still going to end up paying hundreds of dollars for overpriced drinks for something you don't need in an environment that's loud and dark and crowded. Go to a pub, go to a yep. cafe, stay away from nightclubs because you are going to be a target for all of these things if you go to one of these places. And I remember I was in Singapore and you know I met this one guy and the next day I said, well, we went to a nightclub and he spent $500 on drinks. You could just take that $500 <laughs> and just had a pint of beer or something or hung out. Well, you know, it's funny. It's just like our parents always used to say, depending on the parent, nothing good happens at midnight. After midnight, nothing good happens after 11, depending on uh, what the uh, what the timing is there. I'm really curious about your photography because I think it's really great that you took some fantastic pictures. You've cataloged your story. You know, what, what do you use as equipment? What, you know, is there some tips for, for some of our audience that does a lot of travel? I mean, obviously most of us just now take out our phone and try to take an interesting picture, but the photos that I saw that you took obviously we're at a much higher level than that. Some tips that you might have for folk cataloging your adventures. Vast, vast majority of people put their camera in automatic mode and that's it. They point it at something and they press the button and that consists of their photography. And most cameras have buttons and dials that do things. And those, those things are there for a reason. Uh, and they actually can make your, your photography better and to learn what those are. Photography is not rocket science. There's only like three things you really have to account for. You know, you have your shutter speed, your aperture and your ISO, and that's about it. And if you just know what those are and also edit your photos, use something like Lightroom. You know, if, if you think back to the days of film, what was the difference between a high end photographer then versus taking your film from a camera and you send it to Walmart and then they come back with a bunch of prints? The difference is, is that that professional photographer is going to be in a dark room that they control where they can control things like exposure and color, whereas at Walmart, they're just going to put it in a machine and it all comes out the same. So that still applies when you take a picture with your phone or with some camera and you don't do anything to it. That's the equivalent of getting it developed at Walmart. Whereas if you actually take a few seconds and you don't have to do much beyond sometimes even hitting the auto button uh, to improve the contrast and the color and the sharpness of your image, uh, in a program like Lightroom, or there's lots of other programs that do similar things. See, I think that's tremendous. I, I try to catalog it. Sometimes it seems to just work perfectly. So, so one question for you, and, and given your adventures, so you've obviously traveled about, could you share with us an overlooked person, place, experience? And, and given that you've had so many, if you have a couple you want to share, because, you know, people are out there, you know, looking for experiences, but the overlooked ones, tend to be closer to people's heart. I'll give you three 
that are all in Canada. And a lot of people overlook Canada. You know, they want to go to do a road trip with U.S. national parks, and they forget that the 49th parallel is a completely arbitrary line, right? Cool stuff keeps going on when you're above uh, the border. So one of the greatest parks in the world is Nahani National Park. Most Canadians haven't even heard of it, and it only gets 800 visitors a year. It's in the Northwest Territories of Canada. And to give you an idea how significant it is, when the very first batch of 12 World Heritage Sites was created in 1978, it included the Galapagos Islands, Yellowstone National Park, and Nahani. That's the kind of level it's at, but most people don't know about it. It has one of the biggest waterfalls in the world, some of the most majestic mountains you're ever going to see, some incredible canyons. And the reason why no one goes there is because there are no roads connecting the park to the rest of the world. You have to fly in. Wow. And it is well, well worth it. And like I said, I I talk about this park all the time, and I don't think it's ever seen an uptick in visitors. (laughs) And I even mention that because it, it, it takes some effort. And you basically have to fly, you have to, you can drive to one of two places, Muncho Lake, British Columbia, which is in Northern British Columbia or uh, Fort Simpson, Northwest Territories. And from there you can hire a plane and you can, you know, your options are basically like two weeks or a day trip because there's rafting expeditions that go down the Nahani River, which is amazing. Uh, or there are flights where you can actually see the whole park in a day and do several landings on the river and some of the lakes. Uh, the other place I'd recommend is Torngat Mountains National Park. This is on the northernmost tip of Labrador. Like Nahani, there's no roads connecting it to the outside world. It's run with uh, local Inuit people who live there. And it's the one of the only places in North America where you can find fjords, actual oh, wow. fjords. And it's absolutely stunning. Uh, I remember one day we went on a boat. We went to the end of a fjord. And some of our guides said, here's lunch. And they gave us fishing poles. And uh, we had to catch <laughs> our lunch. And we caught Arctic char. It was the best fish I have ever had in my life. And uh, fantastic experience. But again, it's a, it's a difficult place to get to, and they have a very short season. And the other place that I would highly recommend is the best place in the world to see polar bears, and that is in Churchill, Manitoba. Uh, I was up there. I had the, the experience of being on the last tour of the season, which is in November, and we saw in one day 43 polar bear. And Wow, it's, that must have been amazing. Yeah. And we, you know, you're in a tundra buggy, which is basically a cross between a school bus and a monster truck. So the polar bears can come right up and stand up and they can't reach you because the tires are like six foot tall tires. And you stay in a thing called the tundra buggy lodge, which if you know, like the sleeper cars on a train, it's like that, except again, crossed with a monster truck and it's out on the tundra. And believe it or not, uh, there's a group called Polar Bears International that has a research station there where they'll do like live videos and stuff of polar bears and they've worked it. So they have a wireless internet signal from town and in the middle of the tundra, nowhere, can't even see another light, right? hundred megabit internet connection Whoa. <laughs> in a tundra buggy because mm-hmm. they had this set up. Uh, so that was also an incredible experience and they have different levels of things. So you can stay in town if you want at a, at a local motel and, and do day trips to, to see polar bears. And it'll depend on the year, of course, because of the weather. The year I was there was actually the sea ice came in late, which is bad for polar bears, but good for watching polar bears because they all just sit there and wait for the sea ice to come in. And the year after that, I had a photographer friend who was on the same trip and they didn't see a single polar bear. But it's, it is the best place in the world because all the polar bears come and conjugate in one spot. 
because it's the first place the sea ice comes in. This has been so much fun getting a look into the world from your eyes. We all have different eyes. We all see things through different filters. And I believe that those who are listening today should tune into your podcast and learn more about you. How can people do that? And if you can share those links, it's going to be in the show notes, but go ahead and tell folks now, if you will. Yeah. So I do a daily podcast and it's like a, you know, seven to 10 minutes long and it's stories of different people, places, and things from around the world. So I have done stories on why French fries are called French fries. I have done stories on Hedy Lamar, the actress who actually invented uh, spread spectrum uh, radio communication in World War II. I've done shows on the, I, j- I just uh, redid one on Richard Nixon. They wrote a speech for if the Apollo 11 astronauts died on the moon that he never gave, but they've recreated it using a deep fake. And so I actually play the speech he never gave about the death of the astronauts. Wow. I've done it on uh, just, it just everything. It's a new thing that you, about something you probably don't know anything about. And I've had so many people, the show's grown so fast who are just saying, you know, once you listen to one, they end up listening to a hundred because they just become obsessed by it and have to get through them. And because they're so short, you know, you can easily do it on a commute. I have parents that listen to it with their kids when they take them to school so they can learn something new every day. And uh, it's called everything everywhere daily, and you can get it wherever you listen to podcasts. I mean, first off, the conversation today was fantastic and, and learned a lot. And, and also when people look at your LinkedIn page or check out the different places that you've been absolutely incredible. Gary, I'd like to thank you once again for, for joining us. And uh, uh, hopefully we can, uh, we can have another chat uh, again soon, but I, I definitely, the seven to 10 minute overview of something really interesting. That, that sounds fantastic. Andrew, we've learned a lot today. And I agree quite a bit with Gary on this is Canada is a really unique place for folks to visit and often overlooked. And, you know, people always tend to think that they have to go a really great distance away. And, and by the way, I hope post pandemic comes soon because I was going to go to Canada this year and go to my first Grand Prix that was going to happen up in Montreal. Uh, doesn't look like it's going to happen, but Canada, an interesting place to think about beyond other things. What what did you learn today? And uh, take it away, Andrew. I didn't have much of a desire to visit Canada, even though I do want to go up and visit because I was just on the phone with one of my favorite Canadians, Liam Martin of Running Remote. And, um, you know, it did stir my desire to go to Peru. Gary and I share something in common. We both want to go to Peru as one of our next destinations. So it's been a good show today. I'm looking forward to tuning in to his uh, channel and uh, both on Instagram at everything everywhere and the everything everywhere daily.com. So this has been good. Thank you, Andrew. And for those who want to catch more of the new nomad podcast, please look us up at the new nomad.net or insurednomads.com. Thanks for listening and stay adventurous. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the new nomad podcast where we bring together an incredible community of people and ideas that embody the nomadic spirit. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. For more amazing tips to help you take advantage of the cross-border lifestyle, please visit us at insurednomads.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.